is indeed is the glory and the power and the kingdom forever, to which we give our resounding amen in the Lord. Brethren, if you'd open your copies of God's word to Psalm 11 this day. Psalm 11. This is our monthly dive into the Psalms. Coming a bit late this month, and that was that's on me. But um, it is important, I believe, that we continue to have the Psalms before us, guiding to shape our thinking and our praying and our being with respect to life under the under the sun, both the S U N as well as the S O N. Brethren, um, the Psalms inform our thinking. The Psalms show us. The Psalms show us the obedience of faith. They show us how the faithful who are the Spirit, how they respond in all sorts of situations. I, I, uh, I, that quote that's on the front of your order of worship, I'll just start there. I had found that to be most encouraging the, from Charles Simeon. He had said truly that the Psalms are a rich repository of experimental knowledge And that David, at the different periods of his life, was placed in almost every situation in which a believer, whether rich or poor, can be placed. In these heavenly compositions, the Psalms, he delineates all the workings of the heart. He introduces, too, the sentiments and the conduct of the various persons who were accessory, either to David's troubles or his joys. And thus he sets before us a compendium of all that is passing in the hearts of men throughout the world. That's very well said. Brethren, when you need words, when you need... Lord, I don't know what to pray. Lord, I believe, but I don't know what to say to the living God. My first exhortation to you is to open up the Psalms and just start reading. Invariably, the words will come. The words will come. The Spirit will use those words and will move within you to make them your own, to personalize them. That end, then, let's stand together, if you would, please, for the hearing of God's Word, and let's read Psalm 11. Stand and read with me and hear the word of Psalm 11. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain, for look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Let's pray. Father, take this short psalm today and press it into the warp and woof of our soul. As with David, so too with us. May you increase our faith in God and may you greatly decrease our fear of men. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, brethren. Well, brethren, I think... By way of beginning today, maybe the first question I want to pose to all of us, I've posed this to myself several times this week, and this psalm has been like a light shining into my soul, but the question of what is it 
that makes you afraid? And some of us might answer and say, well, you know, fear of darkness or I know when I was a kid especially, man, I, was, I had deep trepidation about walking down a hall without a light on. Maybe it's in our grown-up years, it's fear of loss, fear of discomfort. Maybe it's fear of, like I said, loss of whether it be finances, loss of provisions, loss of our good name, loss of reputation, loss of uh, creature comforts marital bliss, whatever. Father, the, the reality is, brethren, that fear and the testing towards fear is something that we face not only daily but hourly and moment by moment. And what I want to press upon you today is, is that, as I said earlier, is that as if it's true that the just will live by faith, and it is, then that means necessarily that the just, they make their decisions and they evaluate the state of their heart in the things that are going on in their affections and in their internal reasonings and their thinking, their self-talk as well as their actions. They evaluate that all in light of, is this accords and consistent with the obedience of faith? Is this trajecting towards, is this what it looks like right now, right here, to live by faith? To step into God and His sufficiency and His fullness? Or is what I'm doing right now actually responding in fear of man or fear of circumstances that may be or may yet we think potentially, hypothetically be, and we don't actually know? Rather than the antithesis between faith in God and fear of men is something that runs throughout the scripture. And as I said, they are mutually exclusive. We're going to see today in this psalm that David, at this point in his life, um, he is given grace and he is able to see very clearly the antithesis between those. And in this case here, he most assuredly, uh, he most assuredly directs us in the way of righteousness, fear of God, not of men. And consequently, faith toward God that drives away fear of men. This Psalm 11, the general consensus, this was most likely composed by David while he was in the court of Saul. So this would have been, he would have already been anointed, but not crowned king. He was serving in Saul's court, you recall, early on. Uh, It was at a time when the hostility of King Saul, though, was likely beginning to show itself. And before it had broken out into outright persecution against David. David's friends, maybe one of his companions, had advised him probably to flee. Flee from, flee, get away to your native mountains for a time. Remain there in seclusion till the king would show himself to be more favorable. Now David, we're going to see at times during his life, does flee from Saul. There are times when he does, uh, you know, and sometimes I would say in my view, maybe there's context where he righteously takes seclusion in the Lord and shelter other places where I think David does not always live out his counsel in this psalm as well, where he unrighteously flees, but the Lord is gracious to him even then. 
He is full of mercy to David even then. But David in this case, he says, and he's going to show us, and we're going to see this in the life of Jesus as well. One of the glories and the beauty when we look at the manifold perfections of the character of Jesus, of God reflected in Jesus, is that Jesus, while always humble, Jesus was a man, a God-man who knew, who, who did not respond to people in fear. Right? He didn't respond to circumstances and even the sure knowledge that a cross awaited him by God's own design in fear. In fact, you recall Matthew 16, it's a little further down from the passage we looked at last week, but that right after Peter's confession, you know, and Jesus says, you're Peter and I'm on this rock, I'm going to build my church and so on. Jesus reminds them immediately after he says that the Son of Man is going as it was as it was foretold, and he's going to go and he's going to die. And you remember Peter thinking maybe as we would tend to. It's like, you know, Jesus, that's going to, that's going to greatly detract from your royal reign. You know, Jesus, that, that's a, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Who would actually choose such a thing? And Peter rebukes Jesus, thinking that he was doing a, a kind thing. And you remember the Lord's response he was in love to Peter, but Jesus saw the invisible, the invisible adversary, Satan, working even through a close friend there. He said, get thee behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. The way of God is not the one, he said, is going to take me away from a cross. It's going to take me to the cross, but it's also going to take me to resurrection. And it's going to take me to glory and fruitfulness, not only for myself, but for you. So get behind me. I can't listen to this. Jesus, flee from the pain, from the difficulty to come. Jesus saying, no. I'm reminded in, in I think it's Luke 13. You remember the disciples come to Jesus and, and, and they say to Jesus, you know, hey, don't you know that Herod is looking for you? Not happy with you. And, and in other words, Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. Stay away. Flee from the danger you remember Jesus' words. I love Jesus' words. He says, you go and you tell that fox. <laughs> it's bold. You know, today and tomorrow I perform healings and on the third day I will be perfected. Speaking of his resurrection, but there was a holy, not hubris, but a holy confidence and boldness in Jesus that did not flee. It didn't look at the circumstances and say, draw back. It said, see the circumstances, press forward. The Lord will deliver his righteous ones. I want us to see that today, brethren. I want us to see in this psalm the reality of a faith in the living God, Jehovah, that is triumphant over the fear of men. Let's consider two key points here. Number one, verse one to three. I called this faith overcoming in the midst of testing or temptation by the fear of man. Verse one to three. You notice David starts here with just, uh, I'm going to say, you know, so many of the Psalms I, I like to think of like sandwiches. Um, you get the meat in the middle, but they, the first and the last verse is often is kind of like the bread that holds the whole thing together. This Psalm is one of those. It starts off with the one piece that says, In the Lord I put my trust. And then he's going to conclude at the end with telling us the other side of that, that that Lord in whom I put my trust, I put my trust in Him because He is righteous, because He loves righteousness, because His countenance beholds the upright. So there's the two pieces 
of it. He starts off with this affirmation. In the living God, I put my trust. The just will live by faith. Past, present, future. They will look to the Lord God in the living God, Jehovah, their Savior, their Redeemer, who called them out of darkness into His glorious light, who has exodused them out from the house of bondage. And they will have no other gods before Him. And therefore, they will look to Him and step into Him. They will seek Him. They will put their trust in Him. That's our, our it, it, you might say if I was to make a Christian banner, say, what is our motto? You can almost use this as the phrase, in the living God and Jehovah, we put our trust. That's what a Christian does, right? I put my trust in, in the living God. So in light of that affirmation, you know, we, we could think of places in the Scriptures, Hebrews 11, that great hall of faith. Faith is itself, he says, the Evidence, literally the title deed to the things hoped for. It is the assurance of things unseen. Faith, which is a gift from God, is in fact our title deed to the inheritance that He has promised us. And with that title deed in hand, knowing that it is ours, we can walk in even into hostile environments and we can say, I, Jesus has bought this for Himself and He has assigned it to His people. And I am one of those people. I need not fear man. Faith is the assurance of things not yet seen, of the inheritance to come. Faith lays hold of God's promises because it believes that He not only is, brethren, simply believing that God is, that He exists, will not give you faith. The demons, James 2 says, believe that God is and they tremble. It's the fact that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, who put their trust in Him, brethren. That is, where, that is what compels and sustains our faith. Brethren, it is not sub-Christian to seek reward from the living God. It is the essence of Christian faith to seek the reward of Him. He Himself, as He said to Abraham, I am your great reward and all that is in me. Seek the Lord. Put your trust in Him. But then you notice David turns from this ardent affirmation of faith in Jehovah as the heart of this spirit of power and love and of soundness of mind that you see embodied that. And he's going to turn and begin to assess the anxious arguments being brought to him for this friend, for why, why he should instead fear man, why he should flee, look, look, look what he, why he should go with the spirit of fear instead of power, love, and a sound mind. And the First thing to note here is the temptation, the test from this, you know, uh, the test to say, David, you need to flee this trial instead of fighting in faith. Look at 1B. David, flee. Be like a bird to your sanctuary, to your mountain. Deliverance is found in fleeing, brethren, not to our mountain, not to... uh, our place, but the Scripture's deliverance is found actually in seeking refuge and fleeing to the mountain of the Lord. And I think that's the heart of this. What do the righteous do in the face of fear of men? Do they go and hide in a closet? Do we do like ostrich and bury our head in the sand and just pray it goes away? Do we remove ourselves as far from it as we can? No, brethren, the righteous, they flee 
to the Lord. They flee to Mount Zion. They flee to the sanctuary of the living God. When we think of the Psalms of Ascent, for example, why don't you just turn there real quick to Psalm 121. Let me just look at some examples of this. These are known as the Psalms of Ascent into the mountain of the Lord. These are the songs that pilgrims would sing year by year as they went into the presence of the Lord, and they're very instructive. Whereas the one to David says, David, be like a bird, flee to your mountain. Just run away. Run away as far as you can from danger. David says this, Psalm 121, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He won't allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you won't slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall not slumber nor sleep. He is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will preserve you from all evil. He will preserve your soul and your going out and your coming in from this time forevermore. David says in Psalm 122, I was glad when, I was glad when they said to me, run, go into the safe sanctuary of the house of the Lord. Go to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of God, into His presence. Psalm 123, unto you I lift up mine eyes, O you that dwell in the heavens. As the servants be, look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of the maid to their hand of their mistress, so our eyes look to Jehovah our God until he has mercy on us. And so on. Psalm 125, those who trust in Jehovah are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abideth forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord Jehovah surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Brethren, you see what's going on here. David is being tempted to flee to your private sanctuary. Just get away as far from danger as you can. And David's saying, no, I will rather draw near to the living God into his holy temple now. And I will be preserved. I will have courage because my God in real time will defend me. We're not called, when we're called to flee from the presence and the power of real moral evil, brethren, to separate from evil, wicked men. It's certainly true in the scriptures there are times we are to flee from moral evil. I can think of 1 Corinthians 6. Flee sexual immorality. Get as far away from it as you can. Have nothing to do with it. Ephesians 5 tells us, you know, have nothing to do with the ungodly, the unjust works of darkness, but rather expose them. We can think of 2 Corinthians 6 where we're told, uh, you know, what fellowship has light with darkness, or Christ with Belial? What fellowship has believer with an unbeliever in the sense of close fellowship? It doesn't mean no table fellowship, no eating, but what close intimacy do we have with that? And the answer is, come out from among them, be ye separate. Again, that doesn't mean we don't have friendships at all with unbelievers. We do. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, even when people falsely accused him of being a wine-bibber and a glutton. But rather than the close friendships, the things that define us, where do we run to? We run to the presence of the Lord our God. Are there situations in your life right now where you need to raise the shield of faith, quench the fiery darts being lobbed at you, 
to instead of fleeing from those things, to stand firm in the Lord and the power of his might and take up the shield of faith to quench those fiery darts rather than fleeing. That's the call. Brethren, we're called to stand firm in the Lord and the power of his might, not run away from the danger in the battle. The Lord will deliver us. His armor will protect us and his presence will defend us and will uphold us. The second test here, the argument is put for, he says, David, how about this verse 2? David, fear men instead of fearing and trusting God. The fear of man, we're told in Psalm 29, verse 25, brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous flee. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Right? They don't run from the field of battle. They run to the stronghold that's right in the middle of the field of battle. And they find the Lord right there, a very present help, as Psalm 46, in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the mountains be removed, and though the earth be thrown into the sea. Because in the midst of that field of battle, there is a stream that makes glad the city of our God and the people of God. There is living waters in the heat of the battle, on the battlefield, not running away to the desert. The fear of the Lord, brethren, the honor of God is the beginning of wisdom. It is our understanding because the scripture tells us in Proverbs 9 that the honor, the reverence of God, the faith in the Lord, by Him, by Jehovah, my days will be multiplied. And by Jehovah, years will be added to me and I will be preserved. Think of Jesus in Matthew 10. We know these words. Do not fear those who can... They can kill your body. They can hurt your life. They may be able to do things to you in the temporal realm. Maybe. The Lord so often defends us even from those things. But I think Brother Paul Vaughn, here he is in prison. You may say, well, did the Lord sovereignly keep him out of jail? No. The Lord, I assure you, though, he is defending him in that prison. He is preserving him there. He is going to turn it for good so that light goes forth into dark places so that Paul's family is provided for so that on the backside, much good will come out of this that wouldn't have otherwise. Above all, the goal, our prayer for Paul, that Paul would be a man who in this situation knows no fear except the living God. And because of that, he will have a bright, shining faith. Brethren, that's true for us. I don't fear men who can only hurt my temporal life. Rather, fear God, Jesus says, to him who is able to ruin both soul and body in hell. Fear the living God and obey him. We heard earlier Psalm 27. The Lord is my light. He is my salvation. Jehovah is my light. Whom shall I fear? The Lord Jehovah is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I stand in dread, afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, it's like in Psalm 11, when they came against me and and railed their threats, my enemies, my foes, they stumbled, they fell. Even though an army may encamp against me, my heart will not fear them. Though war may rise against me, even in this I will be confident. How is this possible? David goes on and tells us how it's possible in Psalm 27, continuing in verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that also will I seek, 
Where does David's boldness come from in the face of the fiery arrows and the threats of men upon his life? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, where I will behold the beauty of the Lord, that I will inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he will hide me in his pavilion. In that secret place of his tabernacle, he will hide me. He will set me high upon a rock, and my head will be lifted up above my enemies all around. And I will sing praises to the Lord. You see it, brethren? What David has learned to do is not to, not to flee from men, but to flee to God. That's what faith does. Remember Elijah, after that great battle on Mount Carmel in which fear, the faith in God on display, he took on the demonic gods of the Baals and the 450 prophets of Baal. He even mocked them in the name of the Lord. And then in a great powerful demonstration, Jehovah showed who was God, did he not? He showed who was God. But then the next thing we see, and I relate to Elijah, Jezebel begins to say, I want a price on that man's head if it goes till tomorrow. May it be so to me. And suddenly Elijah, he's, he's troubled. He's overtaken in the fear of men. And so he runs and flees to a mountain but he flees not to the close mountain, to the Mount of Zion there in Jerusalem. Rather, he goes 40 days out into the desert back to Mount Sinai to the law. Get as far away from Jezebel as you can. Don't, he didn't flee to the house of the Lord from Jezebel. He, fleed, he just fled as far away as he could get. But you remember, even there the Lord met him in grace. The angel came and provided for his needs food and nourishment. But then he gets to as far away as he could almost possibly get from Jezebel. And you remember the Lord met him there at Mount Sinai, not in the quaking, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in that still small voice. And the word that comes to is this, is like, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Why? Elijah, remember what I did. Remember how I delivered you from the prophets of Baal. Do you not believe that I am able and willing to deliver you from Jezebel? And when Elijah comes back and says, Lord, you don't know how bad it is. I alone am left and they're seeking my life. You remember the Lord said, no, no, Elijah. It looks awful, but I assure you, I've got 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You are not alone. Elijah, stop fearing. Get yourself back into the heat of battle. And I'm going to give you help. Go anoint Elisha. <laughs> and I've got things for you to do. Brethren, that's the call for you and me. Step in faith. Run to the Mount Zion, the presence of the Lord. Don't run to Mount Sinai as far away from the battle and the danger as you can because you're going to find that you will find God in His holy temple, not on the backside of some desert where you fled from men. The other last temptation He gives here, He says, look in verse 3, David, can't you just face reality 
Instead of waiting and hoping for divine help and empowerment and blessing. He says it this way. If the found, David, if the foundations are destroyed, look around you, David. Maybe you were the anointed of the Lord. Sure, you're supposed to be the next king. We get that. But look, David, the kingdom's in utter disarray. Saul is like a ravaging bull in a china shop. He is ruining and upheaving the foundations of the kingdom. David, there's not going to be any kingdom left for you to inherit. Don't you think, David, that if the foundations are destroyed, ask, let's be realistic, David. I appreciate, David, that you're an optimist in this faith, but David, maybe you just need to get real. Anybody ever face that kind of temptation? Maybe been a source of temptation to somebody else on that? Faith is nice as a concept, but don't try this at home. <laughs> right? Don't pull that out of your closet in real life. Don't step out on that, don't step out on that branch and believe that Jesus is actually going to hold you. That's good as far as Emmanuel goes and to pass a test on theology, but don't actually try that unless you know that you've got a big net underneath you to catch you, and you can see it. You see, that's the temptation here. David, if the foundations are destroyed, since the foundations are destroyed, they weren't destroyed really, were they? It's like Elijah. The foundations are destroyed. Lord, no, they're not. I've got 7,000. Now get back into the fray. I've got you, Elijah. The foundations are not destroyed. But if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer to that question, brethren, simply is this. Build in faith. Build in faith. We read about Nehemiah earlier. I love Nehemiah. He's back in Babylon and he hears the word that the temple had... The work on the temple had gone and they had been rebuilt, but the walls were still in disarray. The people were still open to the attacks of the Sanballats and the Tobiases. No defense for the people of God, and his heart is grieved. And so God opens the door, divine blessing for him as the cupbearer to go back and to, in the name of the Lord, to help rebuild the walls. And he sets back with a holy mission. We're going to gather the people of God from our various tribes, but, but we're going to gather the different families around each one, and we're going to scope out. We're going to begin to rebuild the wall. And, and, and yes, the enemies are going to level their threats, and we're going to be you know, building with one hand with mortars while having a sword on the other, and we're going to have watches. We're doing all the humanly wise stuff, yes. But we're going to build. We're building the wall. Are the enemies threatening us? Yes, they are. Let's put the watch out. The Lord will be our defense. Because we are building His walls. We're building on that foundation of Jesus, even in difficult times. What about in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, when the enemy, instead of going on full frontal assault, he gets invasive and sneaky? We read about that in Nehemiah 6, right? Right? Sanballat, Tobias, Geshem. They say we can't get them to cower by just our threats. So let's send emissaries to infiltrate. Let's come in and say, you know, Nehemiah, you know, we, 
why don't you let us just kind of help you in this work a bit? Or Nehemiah, why don't you flee into the temple? Because after all, that, that, it, right in the middle. Now, they didn't want him to flee there because of the presence of the Lord, though, did they? He says, I perceived, I perceived that this wasn't of the Lord. Rather, they were seeking to call, put a stumbling block before me to have something against me, to say, Nehemiah, he's afraid. And he's running from the battle to save his own skin. They set a snare before him, but he saw it for what it was and says, no, I will not flee because the Lord is with me out here as we're building the walls, not only in the temple. We will build. Brethren, what do the righteous do? What do the righteous always do when the foundations are destroyed? They build. What does the Bonhoeffers do? when German society is coming unglued and Hitler and his evil Nazis, demonically inspired wickedness, running rampant, destroying, killing, looting, threatening, terrorizing, what do they do? I'll tell you what they do. Is they gather together, they pray, they send out word and they identify and they gather together faithful Christians and they establish the confessing church is what they do. And they have seminaries for training faithful confessing pastors right under the nose of the, of the Nazis. And they do so without fear. Yes, they are in hiding. They're not right out in the open. Here, shoot us. But they do it. They don't say, the Nazis are in power. Evil's reigning. Just find a hole and hide in it. No, they say, we have work to do. We will build in the name of the Lord our God and he will help us. We have walls to build. May we lose our lives? Yeah, Bonhoeffer did. Brethren, I assure you, he found his life. Didn't he? Brethren, look around us. Our country is in disarray. There's evil just running rampant like we have never seen in this country. The judgment, the discipline of the Lord against our once, our covenant-breaking apostate nation as a whole, and even the church that by and large has, you know, there are 7,000. There's way more than 7,000 who are not bowing the knee. We want to identify and be part of them, that confessing church. May we know them and love them as Jesus knows them. But brethren, yes, there are hundreds of thousands that bear his name that are cowering, and capitulating, and just going with the tide of the culture over the cliff to perdition. So what do the righteous remnant do, brethren? We lock arms with the other families of those who love the Lord Jesus, and we build in faith. We lay the foundations. Remember Isaiah 58. They will be known as the repairers of the breach, the restorers of the foundations. We build in faith. So just quickly then, look at the last four verses. I'll just go through these quickly. Instead of fearing men and our faith overcoming and testing against the fear of men, what it does is our faith overcomes by trust and truth and the faith and the fear of God. Verse 4 to 7, look what David says. He says, Trust is founded upon the truth about Jehovah. The truth sets us free. The truth empowers us. It encourages us. It fortifies us to stand fast in the Lord and the strength of his might. 
Let the world take their best shot. I don't count my life as dear to me that I may gain the crown and I may build his kingdom. To me, to live is Christ, to die is but gain. You can't touch me, whether visible or invisible. Brethren, people like that are courageous and they're bold. They flee, they, they, they stand firm on the rock. Look what David says, first of all. He reminds himself of the truth of the Lord's domain. I got to alliterating here again, so work with me on my D's here. About his domain. Remind yourself, the Lord Jehovah is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heavens, and the heavens are above. They're above the men. Remember the biblical cosmology. There's under the earth, that's Hades, Sheol, place of the dead, waiting the final judgment. There's the earth where we are on the land. There's the visible heavens, but then there's the highest heavens, the realm of the living God, of the angelic beings, and so on. I remind you that the church, Jesus, uh, Paul says that we are seated, in fact, in the heavens. The church triumphant, along with the church militant here on earth, we are, the church is seated in the heavens around the throne with authority, just like Jesus' power, dominion, might, on the things that are below his feet. So the Lord our God is still in the heavens. Let Biden rage. Right? Let, let the Pelosi's, the Kamala's, let the, the Pritzker's, let them say their worst. We will not fear. We will build. He reminds also of the Lord's discernment. Verse 4b and 5. The Lord's eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. What does that mean? Mind you, the word righteous there. That's the first time we see righteous in this psalm. The Lord's eyes behold. His eyes test. The Lord tests the righteous. But he contrasts that with the wicked and the one who loves violence. The righteous, the Hebrew word sedek. The idea here. Righteousness simply is this, is those who are faithful by faith to God's covenant. Righteousness biblically is a fundamentally covenantal concept. To be righteous is to keep covenant, to keep terms of covenant, to walk in fidelity to God's covenant. That's why God is righteous because God himself always keeps his covenant with his people. He is the righteous God who keeps his promises, who does good and will deliver and build his people, though he tests them. And conversely, those who are the righteous among us are those who by faith seek to be faithful, to walk in his ethics, to keep his commandments, to pass on his covenant to our children with generational vision, to honor him as Lord God in the hierarchy of the heavens as Lord above all. We keep our oath and our vows to him by faith, and he keeps his to us by faith. Brethren, that's righteousness. It's tied into the obedience, what Paul calls in Romans, the obedience of faith. They practice righteousness. And look what he says here. He says that the Lord discerns. His eyes see His eyes behold all. The eyes of the Lord, 2 Chronicles 16 says, run to and fro throughout the earth to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose heart is right toward him. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. Do you believe that? 
you believe, brethren, that the Lord's eyes are running to and fro throughout the earth and that when we say we will build instead of cower in fear, his eyes see us. And he says, I will show myself strong on your behalf because you are not cowering in fear. You are walking and standing in faith in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the darkness, holding fast to the word of life. The Lord sees us, brethren. In this image he gives here of his eyelids testing. How do eyelids test? I'll tell you how they test. When you, and I, this is happening to me more as my eyes are getting old and my, my, my vision is deteriorating. Anytime I open my Bible with this small print here, I have to do this. And what I have to do is I have to squint. In order to see it, I have to squint. When you want to look closely at something and get down to look at it closely, what do you do? You squint. (laughs) I think the image here is this. Not only do his eyes see the broad, the big picture, the Lord's eyelids look in close. He looks into the depths of your heart. He looks at the thoughts and tensions of all men, righteous and wicked. He sees what's in you. And we are all naked and open, Hebrews 4 says, to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And nothing is hidden from his sight. He looks and he says, what kind of fruit is in this person's heart? Is it the fruit of obedience and faith coming from faith that seeks me and loves me and wants to do right? Or is this the fruit, what's coming out of this person, the thoughts and intents of their heart? Are they wickedness? Are they unbelief? Are they not guided by my fear of God? Brethren, the Lord looks close His eyes test to see what's in us, to look closely at what's in us. Our actions, our words, Jesus says we're in our words. Remember in Matthew 12 that um, by your words you'll be justified, your words will be condemned. Jesus says that every idle word we will give an account for. He, he, He hears those things that are spoken in the silence of your heart. He tests, and David says his eyes discern the faithful from the un- Those who believe him and put their hope in him and seek his will and practice righteousness by faith versus those who don't, who are evil and ultimately show themselves to be enemies, maybe even sometimes while using his name. Though they use it vainly because they don't trust him and have not made the living God their hope and their trust in Jesus. The just live by faith. The righteous and the wicked. The Lord will test us by sending trials into our life to see how we respond, won't he? To bring out what's in our heart into the open for not only him to see, but for us to see as well. Do you you value that, brethren? Would you say to me, Brother Steve, I'm not going to fear the trials that may come because, yes, those trials may indeed be used of the Lord to expose dross in me, to expose some things that are really unsanctified, things that are not say, that are not being done in faith, areas where Christ is not yet formed in me in fullness, bad fruit of the flesh. But Lord, all of my trials are covered in the grace of God. All things will work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. He will put me through the fire not to crush me and burn me up like the wicked, but rather to bring that dross out, to get it out of me, 
So that is 1 Peter 1 says, the result will be praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, who though I don't see him, yet I love him. I love him. Because that's the issue, brethren. We love him because he first loved us. And so the trials, rather than burning us up, they make us, they get the gold. They bring us purifying. Don't, re- don't, don't flee from trials. Flee to the Lord in the midst of the trials and let him do his work because he loves you. David speaks of God's disdain. He hates the wicked one, the one who loves violence. Brethren, I want to be very clear about this. You know, there's so many that would say, well, God, God, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Now, there is a truth to that. There is a sense in which that's true. It is true. God takes no delight in the death of the righteous, but rather that the wicked would turn and repent, Ezekiel 18 says. That's true. He may harden Pharaoh for his own purposes, as Romans 9 says, that he would get glory in Pharaoh and that deliver his people. But that doesn't mean that God, uh, that God delights in the destruction of Pharaoh. We need to keep those things separately. Nevertheless, I don't want to mitigate the force of this verse. The wicked, the one who loves violence. Not just, you know, there's people who walk in darkness, but maybe, you know, they're in bondage. But the one who is sold out to bondage, the one who is sold out to darkness, his soul loathes that. Go read Psalm 7. If they don't repent, he's bent his bow. God hates the wicked who love their darkness. And he gives a decree of destruction. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, brimstone, burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Certainly that will be true on the last day. Read Revelation 21 and 22. In fact, let me read it for you. Revelation 21, verse 7 and 8. He that overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. How do they overcome? by faith that drives away fear, by running to the Lord. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, which is covetousness, Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, and all liars, those who love lies, shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Verse 27 of Revelation 21, There shall by no means enter into the holy Jerusalem, the city of God, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. And lastly, Revelation 22, verse 14, Blessed are those who do His commandments, who practice righteousness out of faith, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city of God. But outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, whoever loves and practices a lie. They love lies. They practice lies because they love it. They will have their part in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. And then David just concludes with right where I began, the other piece of the sandwich, right? Why, brethren, does David throughout this psalm, the beginning, say, in the Lord I place my trust? Why does the just live by faith? Look at verse 7. Because the Lord is righteous. That's That's a fundamental attribute of God. He is righteous. He cannot be otherwise. God is faithful. 
He does keep covenant with those that seek his face. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. He will not forsake the righteous who seek him. But David not only says that the Lord is righteous in his attributes, he loves righteousness in his affections. You say, what does God love? What is the thing that at the deepest part of God that, say, makes God tick? Brethren, the Lord God hungers and thirsts for righteousness because he is righteous. And it shouldn't come as a surprise then when he says, blessed are those who like the living God, hunger and thirst for righteousness in themselves, in their families, in the land. And they mourn over unrighteousness and they seek, oh God, purify all unrighteousness out of me. Because you love righteousness, you are righteous. And that's why he concludes here. The Lord's actions... The Lord's countenance beholds the upright. As I said, brethren, that doesn't simply mean that he sees the righteous. That means that he sees them with a view towards good. He beholds the upright with the purpose of doing good to the upright. Right? God's intentions towards you, brethren, are good. Always. He's, as Andrew Peterson says, he's always good. He will turn everything for your good to those who love him and are called. So don't fear, men. I want us to leave today with a prayer on your heart saying, Lord God, show me where I fear people. Show me where I fear circumstances. And Lord, would you drive away all base fears out of my life? And would you show me and lead me to be able to say that I will grow to fear you alone and I will trust you alone? Brethren, Behold your God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word from Psalm 11. God, I want to be a man of faith. Lord, it's hard. Because we are prone to unbelief. We are still prone so often to flee the battle rather than to stand firm in the Lord and the power of his might. We are so prone to flee to lesser, to flee to refuges made of the stuff of this world, to flee as far away from danger or, or difficulty or disease or, 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 or discomfort as we can rather than fleeing into the temple, into the safe refuge of the living God, which is right in the middle as an impregnable fortress and stronghold, right in the middle of the battlefield where we can't be touched. Father, give us faith. Father, I want the faith like Peter that when my eyes will stay fixed on Jesus, we will be able to walk on water. doesn't matter what the storms are doing and the winds that are howling, we won't sink. Because it is Jesus who calls us. It is Jesus who will fight for us, who will fight with us. Lord God, increase our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.